morning. Jim was not able to be here today, so we'll just go without him. Um, I am so glad to be able to um, welcome Missy Robertson to uh, Tyndale today and her colleague, Bonnie Jones, who's also her aunt. Um, and uh, Missy, of course, is a member of the now famous Robertson family that's featured in the hit TV show, um, Duck Dynasty. In addition to playing herself on the show, Missy's a wife, a mom, a musician, um, a volunteer at her kids' school. She also has her own clothing line that promotes modesty while being stylish and comfortable. She and her husband, Jace, have been married for 23 years, 20, 24 years, and they have three children, Reed, Cole, and Mia. Missy's very involved in mission work, both here in the States and internationally. She's volunteered her time as craft director for um, the Christian camp where she and Jace spent uh, many summers as kids, and she and her family also helped support an orphanage in the Dominican Republic where they like to visit and, and help out when they can. When she's not filming for the family's TV show, Missy also travels and speaks about her faith in Christ. Missy's currently finishing up her first solo book. She's been part of... Um, other books in the past, but her first solo book titled Blessed, Blessed, dot, 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 Blessed, um, and that's going to release with Tyndale Momentum this fall, which we're very excited about. So please help me welcome Missy Robertson to Tyndale. <laughs> Thank you for having me here. I really appreciate it. I wore my coat to the very last second. <laughs> yeah, we brought him at just the right time. Didn't we give him a real authentic Chicago winter? Um, so, Missy, before we start, uh, I thought we should give a little background on the show for those in the audience who commute from Mongolia or for some other inexplicable reason are not familiar with Duck Dynasty. So it's a reality TV show, n number one cable reality TV show, right, for several years now. Um, so it's about, ostensibly, it's about life in the Robertson family of West Monroe, Louisiana. And the men in the family are avid duck hunters, and the family has uh, a business called Duck Commander, which, and they make duck calls. Uh, so the show features the whole extended family, and it's often humorous goings on. Yes. Anything else that we should say about the show? That was pretty good, okay. actually. Right. Yeah, um, people always ask us, like, how did, how did this get started? I don't know if that's one of your questions oh, or whatever, but um, because we just, we're a normal family. Yes, we're a bit quirky, and we, well, not me, just the men in my family. <laughs> But, uh, of course, we'll when you... will be the judge of that. <laughs> okay, okay, I'll let that rest. But, yeah, I mean, I knew growing up, you know, and meeting Jay so young and dating and, and getting married young and, and all that and watching Phil. I mean, Phil is... He's his own man. And I, he's just... He's just... Um, you know, he's a solo act. He doesn't really care who's around. He's going to treat one person the exact same way as the other person and it doesn't matter about socioeconomics it doesn't matter about race it doesn't matter about anything else and that was really refreshing to me but just their their whole commanding presence um duck commander is a great name 
real Phil is very commanding in his presence, and the boys were all raised with a very self uh, awareness and self assuredness that I had never really seen before. And so um, that in and of itself, when you really are grown up that way and raised that way, you don't really care what people think about you. You're you're who you are, and you like who you are. I mean, that is the makings for a TV show. You throw in you throw in Sai. I mean, you know, he can just turn any family into the crazy family, really, just his antics. So to watch, you know, I, I even said this last night, to be here in the place of my life and to look back now and see how God worked in all of this for the past 25 years of my life has been pretty amazing. Well, you talked about it a little bit, but um, was it a big adjustment for you to become part of the Robertson family? How did their family differ from yours? Up. Well, I just wrote that chapter, actually. <laughs> um, but yes, very much so. Not in terms of our faith. Our, both, I was raised in a very strong Christian environment, and so was Jace. After, he, after Phil gave his life to Christ, which Jace was around six or seven years old when that happened, and if you have read or would like to read Good Call, Jace's book, it's really, really good. And he did a great job and gave homage to his dad. And I think one of the chapters is entitled Forgiving Phil. And he had a lot to forgive his daddy for. And he did. And their relationship is really great. But it wasn't at the beginning. And so that we had in common in terms of our strong faith in our families. But other than that, there was nothing alike about our families at all. And um, my dad is a preacher. My mom is a music teacher. And so my dad didn't make very much money, and my mama volunteered. So I didn't even find out that my mom didn't get paid. She didn't get paid at our Christian school until I was in middle school. And I, I was like, I looked at her one day. I, was, I think I was about 30 years old when I found that out, and I was like, we were poor, like, on purpose? Like, <laughs> you rejected that paycheck on purpose, and we lived off my dad's little meager paycheck from a, from a church. And she said that was just one of the ways they had decided to sacrifice for this Christian school to get it up and off the ground. And, wow, I really appreciate that about them. Now, as an adult, and all three of my kids, you know, have attended and are going to, to this school, which is wonderful. So, um, but, but, again, the differences are very vast in, ter- in those terms of our relationship. And um, I came from a very structured environment alarm goes off. You have the routine every day of getting up. There's breakfast on the table. We had a little uh, devotional every morning at the breakfast table my family did. We all would get in the car and drive 20, 25 minutes to our school where my mom taught. So we were with my mom all day long at the school and we would have extracurricular activities, come home, eat supper, do homework, go to bed. That was pretty much our life. And I started dating Jace. There was zero structure he didn't even have a curfew. I never heard of that. I mean, I was a cheerleader in high school, and my curfew was 10 o'clock. I'm like, the game ends at 945. <laughs> and my dad was like, yep, you know. <laughs> That's not fair. I, don't even, I didn't even push any envelope or anything. I would just come on home, you know. And Jace, when I started dating him, he didn't have a curfew. He didn't even, what, what does that word mean? It's like, really? So he would, because they lived so far out of town, probably half an hour from my house when we were dating more and more he would sometimes end up spending the night on my couch at home and he wouldn't call his parents there's no cell phones at that point 
they didn't know where he was, nor did they care. I was like, my parents would be calling the law looking for me. And he's like, eh, I'll just call him in the morning. I was like, that was completely foreign to me. And it's so funny when we started talking about having children and we talked about curfews, I was like, oh, my kids are having a curfew. And he's like, no, they're not. And so now they do. Yeah, they do. Yeah. They do in a sense of we've kind of compromised in that area. You know, of course, the daughter is coming up. With the, the boys, you know, it might be a little bit different. But um, we're, we, we have been blessed with wonderful children. And um, for, the first, for the first few years, you know that first kid you, you do all the wrong things with? And um, he, we were very strong on him having a curfew until he would try to break them every time. But um, with our second one, it's like, eh, just call us and let us know where, where you are. So Reed's like, that's not fair. You know, but that's just, I think, the art of parenting, everybody. Hopefully I'm not the only one out there. Okay, good. Yeah. All right. Um, so was it a surprise to the family and for to you when you were approached about doing a TV show? Was that a... I mean, how did that Well, it started slow. Um, mm-hmm. Most people don't know that it, Duck Commander, of course, was our family business. And for years, we survived off the sale of Duck Commander videos, like the Duck Men, Duck Men 1, Duck Men 2. I don't even know what number we're up to now, but it's a lot. <laughs> because if we didn't make that video every year, Walmart didn't buy the new video, and we couldn't pay our bills for the year. So once we got it into the Walmart stores, that was basically our bread and butter. And um, so we would make a new one every year, so we would have a new one to sell and new money coming in. So we pretty much created a following, Phil did, and then of course when Jace got older and Cy was in the videos and all, Cy didn't used to be as eccentric as he is now, (laughs) believe it or not. He was more camera shy back in the day, and he just really wouldn't say a whole lot. Boy, that has changed. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, almost old videos, if you have any or if you see any, you know, $5 at Walmart, whatever, it'd be interesting to grab one of those and to watch it and to see the dynamics. Phil has not changed. He's exactly the same as he was 20 years ago, 25, 30 years ago when they started making these videos. But we, we created a following, and we would go to trade shows and sell these videos. So if you were a duck hunter, you knew who Phil Robertson was. And there's not very many duck hunters out there. But among the duck hunting world, he was big time. So um, Benelli Gun Company, they um, once um, Phil asked them, you know, to look at the videos and all that and asked them to be a sponsor. So they decided they wanted to sponsor the video, which basically means I think they may have given them $10,000 and each a gun, and that's a sponsorship for a year. So they got free guns. They are happy, happy, happy. They got a free gun. (laughs) So they do this commercial. They decided to do this commercial. And they went to um, a restaurant close to where we live, and and I think y'all have seen this too, to where they've, if you've watched the show, drive through in what looks like a boss hog car and Willie's in the seat, and they, they've done this commercial. Well, this commercial won some awards um, a few years ago on the Outdoor Channel. And what happened was they tell Phil this whole script that he's got to say about the quality of the gun and why this gun is so wonderful for this commercial. And Phil just looked at him, and he's like, I'm not saying that. All right, well, we need you to get all this information in here for this commercial. I'm not saying that. 
So they're like, well, Phil, what do you, what do you think? What do you want to say? He said, just turn the camera on. Oh, gosh. That always makes me nervous. And so they turn the camera on, and he says, your shotgun better do three things. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> and they ran it. <laughs> and it won awards. So the producers of that commercial went to the family and said, we think y'all could do a reality show. Of course, they'd met the boys because they were on the commercial with him. They'd seen us, and they were like, something ain't right here. (laughs) So, you know, they think that, they said, we think you have the elements for a reality show. So we all talked about it, and that was the first initial conversation that we had as a family. Like, do we want to do this? And we thought, it's a small network. It'll be fun. They paid us a few thousand dollars to do it, which was awesome. And they said, you can have um, last day. We're not going to put anything out there that you don't approve. And we did it, and it was really fun. On the Outdoor Channel, we did it for three years. So we got to show about our family and talk about our family. And and, um, I remember at one point, they were at the school filming stuff with our kids, and I got really nervous because they showed our school, actually, the actual school. You know, sometimes they'll blur things out for safety reasons. Oh, no, they put Washtenaw Christian School and, you know, did an episode of Reed playing football. And this was in, when he was in middle school. And it made me really nervous. And um, one night at the house, we were outside, a big gathering. And the producer and I were standing there talking. And I was like, the only thing I'm just nervous about showing where our kids go to school And he said, let me just show you something. And he walked me around the house, and he pointed to Jace over there. He was dressed in camo, looking the way he is. And he said, would you mess with that? (laughs) I was like, okay, I see your point. (laughs) That's basically how it got started. And because that was so successful on the Outdoor Channel, it got the attention of the major networks. So how has the popularity of the show, I mean, when you were... Presumably, when you first started doing that, you had no idea what was going to happen. So it's become hugely popular. It's this phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So how has that affected your family, and how do you guys stay grounded? Well, you know, with the, with the popularity of first the videos and then the, um, the reality show on the small network, it was kind of like baby steps. We could see a little bit more. Sometimes we'd be recognized when we were in an airport or something like that. Um, when we started Duck Dynasty, we just thought it'd be maybe a little bit more. We knew, we knew to a certain point that it was a major network and that more people would eventually see it. But, again, we had no clue. And, and no one knows. And they say, they say 1% of TV shows that are made as pilots actually make it onto the air. So we had no idea if this was going to be successful or not. Willie does like to say, you don't go into any venture thinking you're going to fail. I mean, we did it because we knew that we had elements that were going to be successful in some form or fashion. We would have a following, a small following. But, you know, halfway through the first season, we still didn't know, are we going to get picked up again? We, we just didn't have any clue. And pretty much when that second season started is when it really started snowballing. And no one could have predicted that Phil and the, the episode where Phil and Kay renewed their vows, which was the first episode of season four, would hit almost 12 million households. 
So, um, yeah, we were pretty shocked about that. Of course, with that, it's a little scary because that many people know who you are and you are playing yourself and you have decided that no one is going to take your value system from you and they have been trying and still do. So I think that's one of the hardest parts is um, it's easier now because we're filming season eight, but back when it was one, two, three, it was a lot of battle trying to say, no, we're not saying that. In fact, the very first episode of Duck Dynasty, they bleeped Corey twice. Corey's never said a cuss word in her life. (laughs) And they did it for dramatic effect. And when that came out, we were livid. And so um, Jace and Phil both came down pretty hard on the production company owner and said, that is cheap entertainment. If you're not creative enough to let us look like we really are, then we're not doing this anymore. But you're not going to bleep us for dramatic effect. And they haven't since. So when you see that very first episode and you hear those bleeps, Corey, I promise, did not say anything wrong. So can you tell a story about a time when the show or maybe an opportunity that came about because the show um, allowed you or other members of the family to share the gospel? Has it? Oh, I was gosh, assuming yes. It That's like every day. Wow. It's really every day. And this is something that, you know, when we first gained, started gaining popularity, journalists would say and would ask us, ask me personally, so is this a platform that you've chosen because of your fame, to, to talk about God. First I thought, I had to ch- choose a platform? Uh-uh, no. <laughs> this is, again, something that our family has never been quiet about. We've never been quiet about our faith. And just because we're famous, we didn't have a big discussion and say, I wonder what we should talk about when journalists ask us, or what kind of causes should we support, or... We never had that discussion because we never had to. This is who we are. We know that God, God sent his son to die for us, and he did it willingly, no matter what we did because of who we are, because we are his children. And, and to not talk about that now that we're famous was never an option for us. In fact, it gave us more of an opportunity. So when you say, was there an opportunity? It was daily. It really was daily and still is daily and was daily before we were famous. Really, you think about your own lives, how many opportunities you have every day to share the love of Jesus with someone, whether it is first in your action and then with your words. But now we just have a bigger stage is all it is. And we're not shy about it and we're not ashamed of that at all. Uh, Some of us are a little more blunt when it comes to talking about sin and consequences of sin than some of the other ones in our family are, but we're all on the same page in terms of what Christ did for us and the appreciation we have for him for that. Um, Okay, let's talk about the book. Um, So you have, um, you and Jace have three kids, Reed, Cole, and Mia, and your journey as a family has not always been easy. It's been pretty difficult sometimes along the way. And uh, the book is about that journey and what you've been through, what you've learned from testing, at least part of it is. So could you um, tell us the story of becoming pregnant with Mia, your youngest, 
and learning that she had cleft palate and cleft lip. Okay. All right. We had two boys pretty easily, Reed and Cole, once we decided to start having kids. And um, we just decided to wait a little while. And um, once we got pregnant again, I, a few weeks into the pregnancy, noticed that, well, I was bleeding one night, so we had to go to the emergency room, and I found out I had a tubal pregnancy. And I had a C-section with Cole because he was breached. That's a whole other story you can read about in the book. But, um, but there was scar tissue from his C-section that held down one of my fallopian tubes and would not let the baby pass through. And um, so I had to go into the hospital and have them take that out, which was very difficult emotionally, and it was physically also. But, you know, I stayed home for a week, got over that. I worked actually for my doctors at um, a large OBGYN clinic. And so they were very attentive to me and said, I need to stay home for for a week, and then I'll be back going. So I went to work the next week, worked all week, no problem, and then the following week started feeling a little weird, and a few hours later, I was doubled over in a lot of pain. And what had happened was she, the doctor, did not get all of the cells of that baby out of my fallopian tube, and it started growing again. And she didn't check to make sure my beta HCG levels, you know, were not down. There was nothing that she checked. And so I basically was pregnant with the same baby again in the same fallopian tube and didn't know it this time until it ruptured my tube. So um, I had to go in and do a lot of repairs. There was a lot of stress in that with Jace also, who was not happy that the doctor, you know, did not take care of what she was supposed to the first time, who was also my boss. Remember that, by the way. So it was a little bit of tension there. And um, this time I was off for a month. Well, it took us a little while to get pregnant with that baby for some reason or another. And so we thought now we only have one fallopian tube. And we kind of resigned to the fact that we may not get pregnant. And I was really came to the notion that I was okay with that. I mean, I had two healthy, very active, wonderful little boys. We had gotten into the routine of our little family and even starting preschool, you know, with both of them. And, and so I was good. I was good with it. Um, I ended up resigning from the woman's clinic because Kay, Miss Kay, had bugged me so for so long for me to start working at Duck Commander, I thought this is probably a good time to do it. So I started working at Duck Commander and got pregnant with Mia in the same week. So you know that freshman 15? Well, there's a Duck Commander 50. <laughs> and I gained 50 pounds with her because of Miss Kay's fried chicken and mashed potatoes for lunch every day and... Chicken and dumplings and hamburger steak every day for lunch. So I'm used to peanut butter and crackers for lunch, wow. you know. So, um, yeah, that was, a, that was a great time until we found out, of course, through ultrasound at 31 weeks gestation, which is so ironic to me because I had worked at that clinic for so long. If I wanted to see my baby on ultrasound, I would just run up there and they would do one for fun. I have many ultrasounds of Mia before she was born. I have them of all of my kids just because if there was, you know, not a patient in there running there and get an ultrasound and see your baby. 
And so, um, but we did not find out about her cleft until 31 weeks. And so it was kind of a shock because I kept thinking all these times that we were looking at this baby and nobody ever saw this. So until we went for the fun one, the 4D, that you can see their little fat cheeks, you know, and you can see so many details, which is wonderful, and that's the way we found out. But it was very stressful in that time to find out that your baby has a facial deformity when you have two healthy children already, and you don't have any history of this in your family. And so once I started researching, a lot of it, they say, is genetic. And we just went back on both sides, and it's just not there. But there's a lot of questions regarding why this happens. There's not really a clear diagnosis. And so that answer, we've never received, and me as 11. And that's just something that we just will never know, and we have to be okay with that. Can you explain the seriousness of the condition? I think a lot of us have thought, well, you have cleft palate or cleft lip, you know, you go in there, mm -hmm. do a surgery, and it's done. Right, you know? yes. I was under that same impression, yeah. actually. But there's definitely different variations of this because it's just that the mouth doesn't come together, and the mouth is formed by about 10 weeks gestation, 10 to 12 weeks gestation. And so for some reason, it just did not come all together. It grows from the outside all the way in. And in Mia's case, she on the outside, um, it looks like she has two slits right here. Looks like, it looks like somebody took scissors and just went boom, boom. And which hers is different from most. A lot of babies um, stop way before and have big, big openings in their face, basically. And her tissue was there. It just did not come all the way together. Now, her palate grew into almost like a V, like, like that. And so it started, almost, it came almost together in the front, her gums, and then it widened all the way back to her throat. So she had very little palate, like where your teeth are in the very front, a little bit of palate there, and then it just widened out where she had basically, there's no palate in the top. So it's all open from the nose down the throat which can be very difficult when you're feeding a baby, when you're feeding anyone that does not have the roof of their mouth. So um, we, after a little grieving period, trying to say, you know, when you have something like this, you just we just go straight to prayer, and I think, God can heal her in the womb. God can heal her in the womb. We're just going to pray for that. And that didn't happen. But, Jason, we have to act like this is not going to We have to start figuring out what to do for this. We're 31 weeks along here. We don't have much time to figure this out, and we know zero about this condition. So um, we were led over, over the next three or four weeks to who we believe is the best craniofacial team on this planet. And I'm not just saying that. This doctor is cutting edge all of the time, and he's only four, four hours from us. Which most people, whenever I talk to them in Monroe, they're like, God, you have to drive to Dallas every six weeks? I'm like, you have no idea. In Dallas, there are people there from Virginia, from Maine, all over the country who have to fly in or drive a day to get to these places. We have to drive an hour. We can actually drive over there, have our appointment, and drive home in the same day, which is wonderful for us. It's just it's a lot of time, you know. Most people drive across town to take your kid to the orthodontist. We drive to Dallas, you know, and have our 30-minute appointment and drive home. 
So it definitely is a change of lifestyle in terms of, you know, you have to set appointments far in advance and things come up. You can't just say, oh, can work us in tomorrow. It's, it's more of a major ordeal. But Jace likes to say this, it's not a fixable problem. A cleft is not fixable. It's manageable. When a baby is born with this, you can't, you know, it's like when you cut material and have to sew it back together. You're not going to get that smoothness of that material like it once was. It's pieced and patched together, and that's what it is with her, although they are making wonderful advancements all the time that we have been recipients of in this day and age that are really, really wonderful that we are very appreciative for. So Mia's a remarkable girl. She's very confident. She's got, you know, she's very lively. And um, how did she get that way? <laughs> I have no idea. Because <laughs> we were talking about this last night at dinner. I would, you know, she stands up and gives a speech a lot of times. I think we've estimated about 55,000 people in the last year or so that she's spoken in front of. Uh, I would have never done that at her age. And it was actually her idea. And so... Um, I don't know where she gets that other than, you know, it could be a lot with birth order. If she was the first child, you know, we would have probably had her, so much attention on her. And I don't, I don't know. Being the third child, it was kind of like grab hold and hang on. This, this train is in motion and we're leaving the station, you know. And so she kind of had to just deal with a lot of that. And I talked to parents that have three kids and it's like, oh, that's that third kid. You know, you just, they have to learn on their own because you're so busy with everything else in life where if it's the first kid, you're so attentive to every single thing that goes on with them. And so I think it was great for our family for her to be born in that order. She's very independent. She is very social. She can't stand to miss school. Jessica tells a story last winter. She had, she would spend the night over there because we were out of town or something and Jessica runs in the girls' bedroom. They're all playing, and she was like, guess what? And the girls were standing there like, what? And she said, it's a snow day tomorrow. You're not going to school. And all her kids are jumping up on the bed, and she looks at Mia as crying. <laughs> and so Jess calls me, and she's like, you are not going to believe this. And she's like, Mia, what's wrong? She thought Mia got hurt. Somebody jumped on her or something. Mia was like, I wanted to go to school. I was like, who says that? Nobody said, in the fourth grade, nobody says that. But she loves life. She loves her school. She loves her friends. And her friends love her. And it's amazing to me. I was just talking to my children's minister at church the other night. We have not had any incidents to where she was made fun of. There's, there's one time where a little bitty toddler was pointing at her lip at one night at a football game, and Mia was like, what is she doing? She's like, what, what's wrong with your lip, you know? And her friends pounced on this little kid, like, you leave her alone, you know? And so that's the only time in 11 years that she has had an incident, and you know, you pray for a hedge of protection around your children. I do. I believe that God has protected her from that because you can tell by looking at her, she looks different. It's not that it's like, oh, I didn't notice. You notice. Her bones grow differently, and that's something that we're having to do this next month is a major surgery to correct her top jaw. 
Just di- every child is different when it comes to cleft lip and palate. There is no easy fix. There is no one surgery and done. And I think that's a lot of misconception even in the medical world. If they're not a specialist in craniofacial um, diagnoses when babies are born, so many times OBGYNs will tell those parents, oh, you, one surgery, you can fix that. And it gives these parents this false hope of, oh, good, I can just get them, if I can just get them to that, that operating room, I can fix my baby. And then if they have that one surgery, they never think about doing follow-up. And Mia has had two, it'll be two follow-up surgeries. So if, she, if we were in that environment of, we'll just fix it in one or two operations and you're done, you don't ever have to come back, uh, she would not have the care that she needed. So even though she's very confident, um, she's suffered. I mean, she's gone through tough stuff with just the surgeries alone. Um, And some of your other kids have suffered in different ways. So what would you say to other parents who have had to watch their kids go through tough things? I mean, you as a family have gone through tough kids, but it's really hard for a parent, especially a mom, to see your kids suffer. How do you, what do you say to other parents who are going through that? Well, or see their kids going through that? of course our faith is top priority in our life. There is no way we could have done and gone through and handled the things that we've handled with Mia without our faith in God. We know, and I'm not just throwing that out there like, oh, we have faith in God. We, we really understand the fact that God never left us through this process, that he loves me and Jace and Reed and Cole and Mia so much that he has never left us. He's had his hand in every single thing. And for some people to say, well, why do, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Yeah, we were never promised a life of ease. God actually says in the Bible, you will suffer if you are a child of mine. And so, you know, not because he doesn't love us, but because he does love us. And, again, looking back on our life now, I can see how he's used our family, and especially in this case, to help encourage parents to keep going. Don't give up. And I've seen so many times in the past few years that parents just, they're tired, and they don't want to fight their child. And so they do give up. And they just don't do what the doctors recommend because it's hard. And I didn't really realize that because I'm a worker. And I want to I get it. If, I have a, if somebody gives me a list of stuff to do, I'm going to check it off one by one, and it's done. And I realized that, you know, a lot of those checks were a lot of pain for Mia, a lot of medication for Mia, um, a lot of contraptions on her face that she has to, we have to take care of and maintain and she has to wear. And those are not easy adjustments. They're life-altering stages and phases in her recovery and in her development that, you know, you'll be able to read all this in the book because there's some pretty remarkable choices that Mia made in order to have a better life. When I say that, just in terms of wearing things to school that she didn't have to do instead of wearing them at home so she could play. And just there, there were hard decisions to make. But when I would go in for checkups, and um, at one point we had to fill out how many hours that she wore this mask, and we would turn it in to the doctor. And the first time we did that, the nurse said, 
what do you mean 500 hours in six weeks? Or it was like 492. I was like, well, you said to wear it so many hours a day, so many times a week. She said, but nobody does that. <laughs> I'm like, what do you mean nobody does that? That's what you told me to do. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you tell me to do it, we're going to do it because that's what they have said is best for that child. So for me to say, but my kid doesn't want to do it. That was just not an option for me or for Mia. And so I knew that this was the best place that God had us go. These were the best doctors. It's proven results. This is going to affect the lifestyle and the quality of life for my child. We're doing this. So this book is not just about Mia in your journey with Mia. The journey with Mia is an example of something that you want to say. What is it, the core of what you want to say in this book? I really want people to know we're no different from anybody else. We're not some extraordinary family that had to have a book written about them. That we're an everyday family. And I, that's what I love about books is that you can just, you can learn from so many different people in their own adventures, and we're just one of those. But um, I told Beth Clark is ghostwriting this book for me, and I told her at one point, she said something about this being our biggest challenge in life with Mia. And I looked at her and I said, oh, Mia's not our biggest challenge. I said, our oldest son, Reed, is our biggest challenge. And she looked at me, whereas this is uh, a woman who's never had kids. And so she just didn't quite understand that. I said, nothing that I've ever gone through with Mia physically will compare to what I've had to do raise and read. And I say that you have no idea what that means because you don't know read. But if you have a type A, ADD firstborn child, then you have a glimpse into my life with read. Every day is a new set of rules. If you go to bed that night, that means tomorrow I can test everything again. And... Uh, I'll tell you this one little story. When he was two years and ten months old, I had had Cole, would waited till after I had Cole before I started potty training. So um, I put, I woke him up from his nap on a Thursday afternoon, and I looked him in the eye and I said, "That's it, no more, pain, no more diapers." And he started screaming. And I was like, oh, this was way too late. I should have done this way <laughs> earlier if you have that response. So I, I had nothing on him that day. And I said, every five minutes, you need to use the restroom. Do you need to use the potty? Do you need to use the bathroom? And he would just, he was so mad that he did not have a diaper on at two years and 10 months old. So mad. I mean, he was talking, I'll tell you this, he was talking like a five-year-old. And that's another story too. But he was diagnosed to be talking as a five-year-old. Okay. So he's communicating with me that he is not happy about not wearing these diapers. And so I said, that's it, no more. And so all day, all evening, you know, do you have to go to the bathroom? No, 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 no. Sit him on the potty, he wouldn't do it. And I'm in the kitchen cooking dinner, and he has nothing on but a T-shirt. And he walks into the kitchen, and I said, do you need to go to the potty? And he said, no. And I said, okay, well, when you need to go to the potty, you come let me know. And he ran out. He comes back in about five minutes later. Do you need to go to the potty? And he looked at me. And I said, don't you pee on my floor. <laughs> and he looked right in my eyes, never moved them, and peed on my floor. <laughs> and he got spanked. <laughs> and he got, he, he had a lot of spankings <laughs> growing up, I will say that. 
because he tested every boundary. And I knew, I knew before that, but even with that act of defiance right there, he's testing me to see um, it'll be so much easier if mom just puts a diaper on me. So just the endurance factor of parenting a child like that and not giving up has been very difficult. He's 19 now and in college, away at college. <laughs> but he is, he is, he has so much life. Like, it is never boring at our house when Reed is at the house because um, he is, again, type A, so he is all in for everything he decides to do, and it's something different every day. <laughs> so it's, it's really fun raising a kid like that, but I've told him, Reed, my highest highs in life have been with you, but my lowest lows have been with you too. I can be so proud of him in one minute and want to punch him in the face the next. <laughs> You know, because he's so emotional, and it's, it's difficult, and it, it's a lot of prayer because the number one goal in our family is not for them to get good jobs. It's not for them to have happy lives. It's not for them to feel self-satisfied. It's to get them to heaven. And that is our goal as parents of our family is to get them individually to heaven Hopefully they will marry and be able to lead their families to heaven too. That's the number two goal. But in that, knowing that every day and the grind of, of parenting a, a hard and a challenging child, you know, keeping that in the forefront of your mind is very important. Cole, I want to leave him out. Cole is exactly the opposite of what I just said about Reed. He is very laid back. He's a lot like Jace. He's very witty. He's very smart and bright and articulate and so quiet that you forget about him. And there's a couple stories in the book about that, too. I didn't do it. Jason did. So you can laugh at Jason. But, um, yeah, he is self-sufficient. Never have to worry about his grades. He makes straight A's. He takes care of himself. He never asks for anything. He never complains. He pitched an entire season with a torn labrum in his shoulder until we realized what the velocity, what's going on, something's not right, take him in for an MRI, he has a torn labrum. Pitched an entire season from, from doing that. So he just does not, does not complain. Probably never could get a word in growing up because of Reed was part of the problem. But when you have a child, you know, like that, when you have more than one child, you're going to have completely opposite personalities. I'm no different from any other family or parent out there. It's just that because of our platform, we have a way to share our experiences, the ups and downs of parenting and making it through different crises and coming out on the other side, knowing with full confidence that God never left us and he never will. Well, I want to leave time for people to ask you questions, if that's okay. Um, but I just wanted to ask really quickly, what are your biggest hopes for the book? Well, again, I want people to know that we're not, you know, anointed by something special here. We're just an ordinary family and that we can get through all of these crises because of God and because of our faith and because of the support system that we have um, in regards to our church family and our physical family. And um, I want to give hope to people that because that they um, have a challenge in their life, whether it is a child diagnosed with, with something that they weren't expecting, whether it is an unexpected death in the family, 
um, whether it is a huge financial crisis, anything that you go through in life that you did not plan for in life. Nobody plans to have bad things happen. You, as a child, you look in the future and you, you think, oh, I'm going to have this or that, whatever your plans or whatever your dreams are. None of them are bad. And so when, when, when things are thrown your way, you've got to realize how you can get through them. And with us, there was only one option, and that was with God. And knowing that he did and does love us and he is for us, he's not against us, um, is really our, it's our main hope. So if you um, have a question for Missy, um, stand up and, and feel free to ask, and I'll try to repeat it so everybody can hear. So, feel free. What do your kids enjoy about being part of the show? Well, what do they enjoy? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> Um, they go through phases, actually, my kids do. At first it was exciting, and now if it gets in the way of their life, they don't want to film. And so, you know, we have kind of a schedule of what days we're going to film. I don't know how much of reality TV you watch, but our show is not one of those ones that the camera follows you around everywhere and hopes to catch something good. It's not like that, and so... It's more of a um, formatted show with the beginning of a story, a middle, and an end. And in 22 minutes, it all wraps up, you know, in a pretty package. And so we get a schedule, basically, of what days and kind of what scenes, if you will, that we're going to film. And so we know ahead of time. If the kids are just there playing and they don't um, really have a part in it, then I don't make them film if they don't want to. Um, but then sometimes they will. So what they like most about it is, I think, the flexibility, and they do get some money for being on set, on set, you know, for a certain day. So um, Mia likes that about it because she's raising money for this or that, you know, one of our collections. So um, they like being together just like we do, I think we're together the most as a family when we're filming because it's all of the adults at the dinner table and a few kids, and we have a really good time filming, and we laugh a whole lot together. So I think just being together is probably the main thing. Anybody else? Okay. The episode about Mia's surgery and what, what the reaction was. It aired last Mar March of 2014, and she had a surgery in January, and a few months before that, I had um, asked the network to cover it, and they were very, very hesitant about it. And the reason that I knew that, that we could do it and I would be okay with it is because that reality show that was on the Outdoor Channel, Benelli had done an episode about Mia's condition, a very lighthearted Christmas episode. We had the families over that were lived in our hometown that we kind of networked together. Willie played Santa Claus, and he was having trouble getting the suit on. And, you know, it made it just very light and jovial, and the doctors from Dallas drove in and surprised the kids and the parents. And it was kind of emotional, but then funny at the same time. Benelli, a gun company, pulled it off and said that it was their most talked about episode in three years. So I shared this with the network, and they just said, no, we're just not doing that. We're just not doing that. Our show is a comedy, basically, and we are 
too scared that people would laugh at Mia. And I was really appalled at this because I thought, if a gun company, I actually told him this, if a gun company can pull it off, can a TV network, you know? And I think that kind of hit their ego just a tad. <laughs> so um, they, I got a call a couple months later, and they said they wanted to do it, that they would just send one cameraman with us to the hospital. And one cameraman versus four cameramen, basically 50 people with lights and PAs and I don't know what all they do. There's always people running around doing something. We don't really know what all they're doing. But it's a big deal. And so to send one cameraman I thought was perfect because, and it was a cameraman that we've grown to love and we trust him and that he would be, we knew he would be very respectful. And so we did it around this um, episode that um, Mia requested she had, we asked if she wanted to have a party or something before her, what she wanted to do before she, before she went to surgery because she was going to be basically incapacitated for a few weeks and not be able to do anything physical. And she asked for a family reunion. And so we had family come in that we had never seen before. Of course, once you say, y'all want to be on TV, they're coming in, you know. <laughs> Well, well, I know, okay, it's cold here. I mean, I woke up this morning, it's one degree, right? It was like, I don't know, in the 20s when we did this, when we filmed this episode last January for Mia, and that is really cold in Louisiana, and we had this reunion outside, and we had, you know, these wrestlers, I'm not even going to tell you the comments because they didn't have any clothes on except for their little wrestling pants. <laughs> I mean, you know, Willie and that, they were making so much fun of them because they, they could not cover up or anything. They had to just do it. And so it was a really, really fun episode, probably one of the most fun episodes that we filmed. It was just really cold. But they, I think they did a great job in combining the humor of our family into the support of our family. And it got a lot of media attention which was more than we expected on that. It got, actually, her at the time of surgery, got a lot of media attention. And then we realized because her surgery in January got so much attention that when the show aired in March, we were going to get even more. And so that's when we decided to form a, um, a, a, a charity, basically, called the Mia Moo Fund. And it's there to, to help families like us who didn't know anything about cleft lip and palate and who didn't have the money to travel, basically, for travel expenses and for surgeries. And so we've raised quite a bit of money to help these families, and that episode really was the launch of that fund. And it's named Mia Moo because when she was born, Willie started calling her Moo Moo, and he has, he has a nickname for everybody. Cole was stinky because he threw up in <laughs> Willie's car one time, and so he was stinky for years, you know. But uh, he called her Moo Moo. And at first I was like, why are you, why are you calling my child the, what a cow says? I'm just not cool with that. But now everybody calls her Moo Moo. Mia Moo and Moo Moo and Moo Koo and all that. And so it was just natural to do this foundation, the Mia Moo Fund. And so I'm real excited about how we can help families with that. Okay. I don't know if there's one in Chicago, but because it's more regional, like the southeast. But um, but if you go to shopmissyrobertson.com, you can put in your zip code and you can see if there's anything around here. 
But, um, yeah, that was kind of out of the blue for me because I've never been a shopper, never had a reason, never had any money, didn't grow up with any money. So shopping always stressed me out. And then um, I had to do a local fashion show once we started having these little platforms to raise money. And uh, a girl that owned a boutique in town that I was modeling the clothes from from her store, we got to become friends. And she actually pitched the idea to someone at market, talked to them at market, and a company called Southern Fashion House was like, we would love to do something with her. So they um, came down to the house a week later, and we met. And I just told him the only way that I would do this would be if I could share my frustrations as a shopper and fix all those problems. And they were like, like what? And I said, because I am a Christian woman, it's hard for me to go into a department store and try on something and walk away satisfied because I like to go to the junior section because they have the cuter stuff. When I put it on, I think, oh, heck no. You know, it's not covering here. It's too short if I bend over this. So I just usually leave frustrated because the department stores are so huge. Then you have the, the ladies section, and you don't know what's the old ladies section. What's the young? I have no idea. So I would just leave frustrated. So now the goal is for me um, is design clothes that are cute and that make you feel young but cover everything that needs to be covered, no matter how you sit, no matter how you stand, if you have to bend over and pick up your child, if you have to haul bottled waters into the concession stand at your kid's baseball game, whatever you're doing, you're going to be covered, but yet feel very cute and young and fresh all day long. That's the goal. Just one little follow-up question. Is there a problem with shopping in the old lady section? <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> All right, good. Um, I think we have time for one more question. <laughs> hey, I was going to ask, follow up on your uh, charity work. Can you talk about some of the work you've done in the Dead American Republican Orphanage? I would love to. I just got back three weeks ago from there, and I went actually with a different group this time. We usually go with our teens in the summer. And um, we have an orphanage, our church does, in the Dominican Republic in a little town called Naba. And we didn't realize really how destitute these kids were until we've been going more and more and more. Because even the people in the Dominican that live in the Dominican, they say, you go to Naba? They call it the armpit of the Dominican. (laughs) It is not a great place. The kids are right in the middle of town. But... Our church has been able to basically rebuild their orphanage. And when I say orphanage, I'm saying it's a structure that's smaller than this room. And it has 17 children living in it. And so they have four bedrooms and two bathrooms that they put these kids in. And a backyard that's half this size that just had barbed wire around it And when, when we got involved. And there is a big risk over there of human trafficking. And with those teenage girls and preteen girls living in there, it was, it was very dangerous. And so our church was able to build eight-foot cinder block walls that, that held them in and protected them. But um, over the past, I guess, five years, we've grown to have a relationship with every single one of these children. And they're not just kids in an orphanage somewhere. They're actually Anderson and Mario and... All Maria and Albert and Daniel and 
they, they actually are children that we know and that we love and that we have a relationship with. And so to be able to be a part of something like that where you can make a difference in a, not just one child but 17 kids' lives, and not only are they learning about God, they're learning English because we know now that the only way they're going to get out of the poverty in the Dominican over there is if they learn English and learn a trade. And so they're learning about God through English and through their Spanish teachers, but they're also going to learn a trade and be able to go to the universities there because of our church. And it's, it's a wonderful thing. I absolutely love it. I can't wait to go back every time and see those kids. And I surprised them this last time. They didn't know I was coming. And Bonnie and I went on with a medical team, which is a whole other story, that's a whole nother story. But I actually scrubbed in surgery and helped remove a gallbladder. It was awesome. <laughs> I did not think I was able to do that, but it was awesome. But anyway, we snuck to Naval, which is like an hour away, and I walked in, and they were just like, <gasps> they were just so happy, you know, to see me and, and see Adam, the, uh, the guy I was with that actually lived with them for a few months. And so to be able to really not just say, oh, we support an orphanage because we send a few dollars every month, but actually have a relationship with them and support the people that, who want to live over there and work directly with these kids to try to not just save them from sin, but to save them from just poverty and depression, is, it's been a wonderful thing for them. Thank you. Um, just quickly... These are the people that are going to edit your book and design it and manufacture it and sell it and market it and ship it out. Anything you want to say to them? Thank you so much. <laughs> and I don't even have a beard and y'all are doing this for me. It's like awesome. I really do appreciate it. I'm really excited about this. I think when I, I think it was you on the phone, the very first conversation, and I said, it's just in my bones to get this story out. And I think that not that we're perfect, not that we made all the right decisions at all, but we always can honestly and confidently say that we've always had our ear turned to God, trying to listen to what he had planned for our lives, no matter what came our way. And so to be able to share our experiences with people out there and to give them some hope and encouragement through all of you is just a wonderful gift. And I say thank you. Thank you so much. We're dismissed.